0: You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Week Ahead Podcast with Rachel and Chuck. Chuck, I know you had a really busy week last week. You were in St. Paul and Lake Ozark, Missouri, right? I'm curious to hear
0: about the St. Paul trip first. Oh, really?
1: That was uh, a pedestrian theme, right? Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's really weird. You know, I'm I'm not a, um, I'm not like a, a creature of either politics or like on the ground organizing kind of stuff. It's just, it's not in my blood. It's not in my veins. And so we got there and they had this press conference. It was really kind of weird. It was a pedestrian kind of awareness thing. And they had this press conference and we were like props standing in the back with a sign, you know, and I was kind of standing with the group. What and did people your sign would, say? I, I, you know what? I don't even know something. <laughs> okay. I, I have absolutely no idea. Um, but people would go up to the mic then and talk and ostensibly they were talking about pedestrian safety, um, from where we were in order to get the right camera angle, we were like way behind and then, um, you know, it was really windy. So like, literally we could not hear a word, but then every now and then like they would turn around and like, that was our cue to clap. And so, so it weird. was, <laughs> yeah, it was such a weird experience because I don't do, I mean, I've been to one other press conference in my life and it it was also a a bizarre experience, but I've never been in one. So all of a sudden I was one of those props in the press conference and it was kind of surreal. Like, okay. And I literally, I just parked and like walked over and that was happening and they're like, Chuck. So they pulled me in. So yeah, if you saw me on the news out of St. Paul, cause there was, you know, all the video cameras and everything there. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm like, I'm standing back there going, okay, I feel kind of rude, like walking away from this, but I also feel kind of weird standing here. Cause I'm, these people could be talking about like, you know, something you don't agree with. Yeah. Like pro child molestation or something. And I, <laughs> I would have no clue. Cause I can't hear a thing they're saying anyway, they weren't pro child molestation. They were, they were people who were concerned about pedestrian, um, safety. The interesting thing is after they did that press conference, then they had this, Essentially, I'm gonna get myself in trouble here, but they had essentially this like this entrapment thing, where they would send people walking across the street, and then when cars, you know, when drivers didn't like react the way they're supposed to, the police were there to pull them over and give them tickets. And I've seen places where they did this before, and you know, I, I always I always struggle with these because there's the side of me that says, yeah, I totally get it. Like, you know, this, this is the law and you're in a car and you're supposed to follow the law. There's like absolutely no question at all. But I always feel like queasy about it, particularly like the, the speed trap ones, because there's, there's other side of me that says this is like total entrapment. I mean, you you've designed this stretch of street to accommodate someone going 60 miles an hour. You've set an artificially low speed limit at 30, and then you've placed in this environment something that is almost completely unanticipated by the design of the environment, and that is a person kind of crossing at random, and then you you know you you're kind of you know uptight because people don't react the right way. You've kind of stacked the deck against everybody in this situation. And I, I always feel like these things, like, let the engineer, the designer off the hook and try right, to Right, it focuses say,
1: on enforcement instead of redesigning exactly, street property. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And so, I'm, you know, I'm sure there's people listening to this that are like, well, Chuck, it's, you know, they have to follow the law. I, I totally get it. But, you know, you, 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 we have the term entrapment for a reason. I mean, when you set up all the conditions to encourage one behavior and that behavior is illegal... Uh, Yes, the person's doing something illegal, but you know you've not exactly put them in a in a place to succeed, and that that's the part that bothers me. So anyway, we did that. You know, watch some people get pulled over, giggle, giggle. You know, uh, then um, I did a, a presentation. I actually did a, a a presentation that I had never done before. I I I made it. I wrote it on Monday. I put it together. Uh, they they had me down for doing a curbside chat, but then they wanted me to talk about pedestrian safety, and I thought, well, those things go together, but not like the emphasis is not on pedestrian safety. And so I did. I took the whole entire gross negligence series that I wrote last year and made that into a presentation, and kind of wow. wove some of the curbside chat stuff in. But yeah, these these four really powerful stories of children getting run down and killed by automobiles in and 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 not focusing on the child part but focusing on the just crazy way we react to these things from you know artificially low speed limits to guardrails to you know awareness campaigns to bollards everything that we can do to avoid the one thing that should be done and that is actually designing the streets so that people drive slower. That's like the one thing that is off the table that, you know, we never ever talk about or contemplate yet. It's the one thing that would actually make a difference. And so the whole presentation is to kind of get people to that point where hopefully they can question speed, you know, uh, and the the kind of the primacy that we give speed, uh, automobile speed in our urban neighborhoods,
1: yeah, that Gross Negligence series is still, I think, like one of the most powerful, at least for me, one of the best things we've done at Strong Towns. And I encourage anyone who hasn't read that, or I think there's a podcast uh, about it or connected yeah. to it as well, if you haven't listened yeah. to that, definitely encourage you to do that. So tell me about then the next trip you went on, the next day
0: to Missouri, right? Yeah, I was in the Lake of the Ozarks, which if you've if you've never been – is absolutely gorgeous. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you're talking, you know, rolling topography, forests, lakes. It's, it's pretty much just gorgeous. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Um, So I flew to, I flew to this, you know, middle of nowhere airport in the middle of Missouri and then uh, went to this resort. And essentially I gave three presentations to a group of city managers three presentations in a row, which was which was really great. I mean, I did the curbside chat. I did the transportation presentation. Then I did the neighborhood's first one. And, you know, th- this is the thing about city managers that makes these fun is that they don't have the design dogma that engineers and planners do. Like they're not married to street standards and they don't worship zoning codes. They don't think like you can solve the world through world's problems through all these antiquated things. They actually want to see numbers and what works. And when you show them numbers, they are very like pliable in terms of their brains. Like they're very willing to say, wow, what we're doing is really dumb. What about this? This makes a lot of sense. So I, I always love presenting to city managers because of all the technical staff that I meet with, they're the ones that are like the least dogmatic and they're the most open-minded. And I think they're the, the ones that have the kind of easiest capacity to pivot and do something different. There was one like surreal point in the presentation. Um, we were having like a conversation at the end and one of these guys uh, raises their hand. Uh, almost all men, I mean, it's probably like 20 to 1 ratio of male to female uh, which, yeah. you know, I think is, is changing, but yeah, probably not fast enough. Anyway, one of these guys raised their hand and they said, so essentially instead of doing like a $4 million project, I should probably go out and try to do like a $400,000 project. And I said, well, what, what's the size of your city?" He's Like, oh, you know, 12,000 and I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you should be doing like $4,000 projects, not $400,000 projects. You know, you you, you got to shrink this way, way down, and that was a little bit of a too far of a leap for some of them. But I think they got the core message.
1: Well, that is a good segue to your um, article that you posted this morning, talking about something that's been. I mean, how long has this whole uh, airport thing in Brainerd been going on? I feel like you've been writing about it for years. Um, I and have. This was the continuation of that saga.
0: Well, and so this is actually more money. Yeah, this is, is actually a central part of that neighborhood's first presentation. Cause um, you know, I contrast what originally three, three or four years ago was a $7 million project. Now is a $14 million project due to bidding, inflation, extra bonding costs, you know, a whole bunch of other things. Um, I contrast that with these small neighborhood improvements and, and you know just the insanity of doing essentially in a nutshell we expanded our airport the fire marshal said you need more firefighting capacity the city could have solved that with something i think they probably could have done for 150 to to 300,000 i use 300,000 as like a high range you know something you basically need a little bit more water storage capacity and maybe a pump that's it Instead of doing that, what we have done is created this now $14 million project to run sewer and water a mile and a half, two miles out of town at the airport because, you know, growth, Um, (laughs) growth and jobs. And and because of like the craziness of that, I mean, like literally you could the local newspaper called it my proposal, a stopgap measure, even though it was it would last two or three decades. But you could do six hundred stopgap, you know, six hundred years of stopgap measures for the price we're spending on this. Uh, just the 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 craziness when you juxtapose a city with the highest unemployment in the state, a budget that is way over. I mean, we're way over indebted, and you know, we're dependent, kind of wholly dependent on aid from the state just to pay our basic bills. And you you contrast like that and the need to make these very small, basic neighborhood maintenance kind of things, plant trees, paint a crosswalk, fix a, fix a sidewalk that we, we have no money to do. I mean, literally no money, but yet we can come up with 14 million for this, like shoot the moon kind of thing that, you know, the, they, they projected 20 new jobs, like twenty new jobs. That's like four hundred and fifty thousand a job. And are those temporary construction jobs? No, that, that's the end result. It's gonna, you know, hopefully someday okay. people will actually build businesses in this new area, and it will result in, you know, uh, uh, like twenty jobs is what the estimate was. Wow. Um, this new area that's
1: not even technically part of the city, right?
0: Well, that's the that's the kicker of this whole thing, and that's where I kind of just. Like flipped out. I mean, I I literally I think people should be fired at City Hall because the the whole project here has been sold to the elected people by the staff as the fire marshal said we must do this. But the fire marshal never said we must do this. He said you must provide increased firefighting capacity, but that could have been done in a myriad of ways. Only one way was ever brought forward, and only one way was was funded. Uh, we, you know, we're getting partial funding from, uh, this state thing. So we're kind of like hook now we're in. Right. Uh, so, you know, th- th- this could have been solved so much easier, but we've kind of perpetuated this notion that the fire marshal is forcing us to do this. And it, it's, it's not true. Because of true. safety, right? Of course. Because of safety, right. We, well, safety, you, you combine safety, jobs, growth. It's got all the, you know, and and a little bit Best of state states. money. Yeah, it's got all the, all the kickers there, and it's just frustrating because I see so much opportunity and potential in this community, but we're stuck, and we're stuck as a as a byproduct of a bureaucracy that's stuck. Right, and, and these people are you know, not any better or any worse than any other city, but what they're doing is responding to the system that's set up. They're looking to the state for their next move. And the state says, here's a bunch of money you can get in this program. And they're thinking, yeah, well, you know, jobs and growth, we can run pipe all over the place and have someone else pay for part of it. So let's do that as opposed to, you know, doing the easier thing financially, but the much harder thing Professionally, which is to go out in the neighborhoods and actually look where people are struggling and try to address those struggles. That, that is beyond us professionally, even though financially it's well within our means and it would be a high return investment and it would make people's lives better. That, that's so, that's the frustrating, frustrating thing about where we're at. And, and it's kind of what makes me like, when when I get, like, libertarian crazy, it's this <laughs> kind of thing that does it, right? Like, yeah. I had that quote from Jane Jacobs last week in her obit in the New York Times. There was a quote from her, and it said, I hate the government for making my life absurd. And I, I don't think anyone would say Jane Jacobs is, like, reflexively anti-government. And you probably, you know, you, you wouldn't call Jane Jacobs, like, a tea party or, you know, Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm not reflexively anti-government either, and I'm not like, you know, libertarian like throw the government out. But on the other hand, I am angry at the government for making my life so absurd. You know why? Why do we have these programs to do these absurd things that really, literally, are bankrupting my city when we could just if they went away, we would actually do so much. We, we would do things that made so much more sense, you know? And it sounds like
1: all of your pushback has not, uh, has not been able to shift to
0: the conversation in the town. Right. I well, mean, I they're mean, still going to do this. Oh yeah. And it, I think two things with that. It's is first of all, it's not like I haven't gotten a stage on this one. I mean, mm-hmm. the newspaper has, has run, you know, editorials that I've written given me lots of room the council you know the the staff has heard me, the council's heard me um the, the, you know my essentially we're like in for a penny in for the pound now, and so I'm just kind of like the naysayer now on the outside like the guy who warned three years ago that you're going to get so far down this path you can't pull back, and now that's where we're at, and the project has skyrocketed from seven million to fourteen million, but we can't say no because we've already got half the funding, right. Right. The, on the other hand, my neighbors, you know, my the, the the residents of this city think that this is absurd. And if you put it to a vote, my guess is that 70 percent plus would vote against doing this project. I would just say this is this is absurd. So you you have this big disconnect between the, the local government the 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 newspaper the kind of institutions that drive the debate you know the chamber the the economic development authority the regional development commission all the kind of inside players you have a huge gap between them and their project and what like actual people think should be done and uh, you know in, in a in a in a sense that's our national gap as well right i mean that's Kind of, I think you see insurgencies in both major political parties essentially saying those kind of things. Like, you know, this consensus, this governing consensus that we've formed that both parties and, and everybody involved seems to be comfortable with is not the direction we want to go. This needs to change. And so, yeah, I, I just wish we could do it now to avoid what is going to be about eight, you know, eight to $10 million in debt. For a city that annual, you know, annual revenue that we raise locally is two and a half million. So these are like unfathomable sums of money. Mm-hmm. But we're going to do it because we're, you know, we're committed now.
1: I want to take a minute to acknowledge and welcome our newest members to Strong Towns. Uh, Daniel Bourbon from Holland, Michigan. Mark Ditter from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Anna Gattuso from Memphis, Tennessee. Alan Hauser from Arlington, Virginia. Ryan Jones from South River, New Jersey, Robert Ordway from Valparaiso, Indiana, Amy Rusko from Arlington, Washington, Rebecca Slocum from Brookline, Massachusetts, and Michael Thompson from Iron, Minnesota. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for becoming members of Strong Towns.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. You know, we don't say this enough, but our, our business model, I mean, we, we forego advertising on the podcast and the blog. We don't, you know, chase grants and kind of, you know, change our message in order to qualify for, for you know, the the, the traditional route that a lot of nonprofits go. We we rely on you, uh, our our members, uh, people who support what we're doing. So yes, thank you so much. Uh, we really really appreciate it, and we could not do this without you,
1: Chuck. What have you been reading or podcasting list uh, lately?
0: Actually, um, it's been a couple of weeks since we chatted. I, I got knee deep in Jane Jacobs. Like I reread
1: oh, yeah. a
0: whole bunch of that in order to, um, write the post that I, I, I did last week. Um, gosh, if you, if you've not read, uh, the, the, the economy of cities, um, or c- cities and the wealth of nations, which is, you know, just fa- th- those are my two favorites, really, mm-hmm. even more than, than the death and life of great American cities. I, I love those two. But, um, yeah, I've actually managed to, uh, dip in a little bit. There's a, there's a book that came out last week called Detroit Resurrected to bankruptcy and back. And, I was a little disappointed because I I was hoping it would go into kind of the causes of Detroit's bankruptcy, but it really kind of glossed over that and just talked about kind of the, the process of going through bankruptcy. And in that case, it was fascinating. And I think it's a preview of coming attractions for a lot of places in terms of the, the, the trade-offs that have to be made in a case, in a case like that. But that was a very good book and i would i would recommend it um, i actually uh re- read the book enemy at the gates which is about the battle of stalingrad and i'm i'm not sure why this is the second book this year i've done on stalingrad i'm not really sure why i've been that interested in it but it's it is a fascinating kind of turning point in in world history it's basically the high point of nazi germany where the tide was kind of turned and then everything was collapsed you know, from, from that point forward and, you know, horrific, um, horrific battle, but a battle with a lot of, uh, individual stories of, of perseverance that go beyond what you think is, is humanly possible. Um, I'm also in the middle of this book called sapiens, a brief history of humankind. And, And it was one of these that was recommended to me in an odd kind of way. It is a very, um, kind of broad brush overview of humans and and, and human relations and what makes us different from apes and chimpanzees and what have you. And Mm -hmm. I found every chapter to be utterly astonishing. Just, you know, the, 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 the way things are framed just make you think. And I found it to be just a delightful read. It's, it's not the deepest thing I've ever read, but it's just very fun. I also, um, and I thought I should bring this up because it's been weighing on my brain the last 24 hours. I finally read the New Yorker piece about the Cascadia fault line out in the Northwest. I'm not, did you ever read this? No, I haven't heard
1: about this. Is it new or an older
0: article? You know, I think it's, I think it's relatively new. Hang on a sec. Let me, let me check. I I was just um, turned on to it maybe a couple, a couple weeks ago. And so the really big one last July, I guess it came out. So this okay. is how far beyond behind the New Yorker. I am, mm-hmm. it's, this, it's essentially an article about this fault line that they discovered, you know, geologic fault line that they discovered in the 1970s. And the reason they discovered it is because it's not been very active. It's not been active at all. In fact, it's been like a peaceful place. Um, in geologic sense uh less active on a fault line is a really bad thing um more active is a good thing because you know a fault line is essentially tension building up and then that you know overcoming friction and releasing that energy mm-hmm. when you release energy often you release it at small doses it's not that harmful. When it builds up, it builds up and builds up. It releases all at once, and it's very intense. And this essentially goes through what is a doomsday scenario for this one fault and kind of points out that, you know, this particular subduction zone where the Earth's crust is dropping beneath uh, one plate is dropping beneath another, these are the most violent kind of faults, and they tend to be very quiet for centuries and then have sudden jolts and movements. And essentially, Seattle, Portland, you know, most of the Pacific Northwest that has significant, you know, population centers are all part of this subduction zone and would be dramatically, dramatically impacted by first an earthquake and then a tsunami. And I've actually read the article twice because it was so fascinating. Um, it's called the really big one. It's by oh, Catherine Schultz.
1: I do remember hearing about that. Okay.
0: Yep. June 20th, 2015, issue of The New Yorker. Utterly fascinating. You have to go read it. It, it will, it will change. It, it, if it does anything, it should make you more humble about that which you don't know, right?
1: Yeah. Fascinating in a depressing way, I'm guessing.
0: Yeah. You know, it's the there was a quote that I heard that I've become fond of using now. About atheists, and I've used it in many different ways, but it was, you know, I, I would be an atheist, but I lack the faith, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and I, I used it last week with the Jane Jacobs week, you know, I, I would love to be a planner, but I lack the faith. You know, I, I lack the faith in my ability to understand everything to the degree necessary to make these grandmaster plans. I I think if you are one of these people who think that, you know, we've got it all figured out, go read this thing. And you'll realize that like the biggest, you know, the biggest fault line is lying right underneath our feet. And we never realized it until essentially we built too much stuff to Mm -hmm. turn back on.
1: Uh, I want to mention our, top post from last week on our website um as you guys probably remember it was jane jacobs week
0: and um daniel harridge is one of our regular contributors he is an extraordinary guy i mean yeah i i i I first met daniel and he you know he i i I won't say he doesn't come across as extraordinary but i mean he's like a, a student in grad school or like looking to go to grad school and kind of Wandering around in life like, yeah, I'm not sure what should be next. And Mm -hmm. he is one of the most insightful writers that we have. And I, I just find his stuff to be incredible.
1: Yeah, I agree. So it was not a surprise to me at all that this piece he wrote, One House at a Time on St. Paul's East Side, was our top, one of our top pieces from last week. And he actually sent it to me the week before. I was going to share it, um, the week before, but then I realized there were some good tie-ins with Jane Jacobs. So saved it for Jane Jacobs week. Um, I thought it was a really interesting piece about this, some historic preservation efforts in St. Paul and, um, the challenges of trying to save these old houses that really need a lot of work, but are, I mean, if you look at the photos you took, they're just these beautiful old houses, um, and could be huge assets to the neighborhood if they're able to be preserved. But, um, the challenges that come along with that. So, yeah, I thought that was a really good piece. And so did our readers.
0: Such an insightful way of viewing the world. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think to, to tie that in with Jane Jacobs, um, and this is not to, to diminish Daniel in any way, but if you like took Daniel and said, give me your resume, um, mm-hmm. he's not going to be like the person that jumps out at you from a resume standpoint. But if you say, give me your deep thoughts, uh, he's the guy I want. I mean, he, he is just, you know, that kind of person. And, and I think, when we recognize that those, you know, like Jane Jacobs w- would attest, when you realize that those kind of people are everywhere in your community, um man, I, I, I just feel very lucky to have come across him.
1: Definitely. Um Before we close, I'll just remind our listeners that if you could take 30 seconds to go on iTunes and give us a rating, that would make a huge difference for us. It helps Get this podcast in front of new eyes, um, helps us get some feedback from you. So if you take, uh, just 30 seconds to give us a rating, maybe leave a comment. If you feel like it, that would mean a lot for this podcast.
0: Hey, I want to ask you a question before we go. Sure. So did you check your mail already today?
1: my my email
0: no your your us paper mail. mail your paper no, mail no
1: it usually doesn't come till the afternoon so oh okay cuz
0: you're you're expecting a package in the mail i'm pretty sure a very certain special
1: package yes do
0: you want to um you know share any of that as like a a preview of coming attractions
1: yes so several years ago a book came out called thoughts on building strong towns volume 1 and with that sort of title, you would imagine that
0: there might be a volume two. With and that, that pre- with that pretentious <laughs> kind of title.
1: <laughs> Good thing there is. Um, yeah, so for the last couple months, uh, Chuck and I and our writers and board have been working on assembling a Thoughts on Building Strong Towns volume two, which is all of our top pieces from 2015, uh, re-edited, compiled, uh, organized, and laid out. Um, It'll have a lot of work from Chuck, but also several pieces from a lot of our um, regular contributors, including Daniel, me, Grayson, Nate, Andrew. There's probably a couple more in there, too. I'm waiting to receive in the mail a final copy for, for us to review and just make sure everything looks good. And then we'll be rolling it out to the presses very soon, I hope so. Yeah. That'll be coming out, and I believe we'll be giving uh, ebook copies for free to all our members. Is that right, Chuck?
0: That's right. All of our members are going to get the ebook version for free. Uh, that's something that we've historically done with with every book that we've put out, and we will continue to to do that. Um, we'll also have like ways for members to get if you want to buy in bulk. We've done that in the past too. I've had people buy them for you know all their all their public officials and what have you and and this this is this is going to be a really good book I'm I'm really excited and me too I, I, I'm particularly happy about the mix of stuff that we were able to include in it I mean Daniel uh, Johnny you Grayson I, there's just a lot of great voices that make up. This particular book, and I'm I'm really proud of it, and I can't wait to get it out there.
1: Me too. We also have two sections on some of our core campaigns: slow the cars and no new roads. We've kind of compiled like the top pieces um, that relate to those topics. So I I like that aspect of the book especially. And yeah, so we'll have an ebook, but we'll also have uh, paperback copies. We're not trying to like make a huge profit off this or anything. So those will be affordable. Our goal is to get the message out. Um, and obviously, you know, support strong towns in the process. So, Absolutely. We'll we'll have some big announcements and emails and things going out once that's ready to roll out.
0: Well, I'm proud of the work that you've done and, you know, Matthias put the cover together for us and it looks great.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. So,
0: I can't wait to get my hands on the draft. They send, you know, you you get a draft and you're getting one, I'm getting one. Uh, and then, you know, you go through and make sure that everything looks good and is right. And, and then you can send it to be published. If that draft, you know, if we don't have to make many changes in that draft, that might be like a collector's piece. We should
1: first edition, first,
0: the first, uh, the first edition, you know, we could get you and everybody else to autograph it and send that out to somebody.
1: That would be great. Yeah. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for listening and, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Take care.
0: Take care. Thanks everybody. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.